two weeks ago, and three weeks ago as well, our two messages that we talked about were all focused on stopping short of what God's plan was for our life. We talked all about the fact that God has plans in our lives um, for what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to accomplish, but a lot of times we don't completely go for it. We end up taking one of our ideas or we just kind of give up on the fullness of God's, uh, of God's idea and we only take part of it, um, but we don't go the full way. We stop short of it. And this message that um, we're going to do tonight, it kind of goes right along with that. Um, when we finished two weeks ago, if you remember right, we had the song The Stand by Hillsong Play. And I said that I wanted you to use that song as your prayer to God. If you really seriously say that you don't want to stop short anymore, you want God's will for your life 100%. And it talks about the fact that he says, I stand with arms high and, and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. Um, it talks all about the fact that he says, My soul to you, Lord, I'll surrender. All I have is yours. And it's all about this complete sacrifice and just giving into that. I don't know how many people sang those words with dedication two weeks ago where you really said that that is my prayer. Absolutely, God, that I want to give up everything. I want 100% of what your plan is for my life. I don't want to stop at 99, 99.9, but I want every single bit of what you have for me. I don't know how many of you guys made that dedication. I hope a lot. But tonight follows really well if you did, and if you didn't even, too. Um, Tonight, we're going to talk about if you really want to follow that plan. Now you say you want 100% of it, but what's going to happen when you start living that plan? Are you going to want to stick with it? Are you going to want to turn around and run in the other direction and say, maybe I made a mistake standing up there two weeks ago and saying that I want all of your plan because I told you all about not stopping short of God's plan, but, you know, God's plan isn't always the Jeremiah 29:11. you know, for my plan is to prosper you. You know, that's what people will quote time and time again. But tonight what we're going to talk about is what I call God's will, the unpleasant. The fact that maybe that will that you were saying I want 100% of might not always be a rose garden, that it might be kind of hard. Um, There might be difficult times with it too. And I wonder if you thought about that when you said it. So tonight follows up really well, and that's actually the reason why I decided maybe we should podcast this one. Because if you listen to this after those last two, it really kind of makes sense because it's like now you said you want it, But let me just kind of give you a gut check and make sure you understood what you just said. And that's what tonight is about. So I don't want to scare you guys, but I'm going to be blatantly honest to you um, what God's will might be for in your life, that it might not be as perfect as you think it's going to be. Scary, I know. I'm not going to tickle your ears, but tonight I'm going to tell you straight out from the Bible what it might mean. And what we're going to do is, is we're not going to jump around to a bunch of different things. We're not going to jump around to a bunch of different spots in the Bible that might support it or not. But what we're going to do is we're just going to look at one guy's life because I think it's easier. It's kind of like a Bible study. We're just going to look into one guy's life and see how he's following God's will and how it was difficult. And I know you guys are thinking it's going to be Job again. We did a series on Job. It's not Job. In fact, it is Ezekiel. And I just got to read this book again, and it's a beautiful book. So I want you guys to turn to Ezekiel. Actually, get in it because I want you to read, you know, it with me. It is uh, Jeremiah, then Lamentations, then Ezekiel, right? Yes. So I want you to get there. Get into Ezekiel. All right, here's the deal. Let me give you the background while you're finding it, okay? Ezekiel. All right. 
Ezekiel, the book written by, who other? Ezekiel, it's self-titled, works very well, it's fitting. This book takes place around 800 B.C., and Ezekiel was a man who was born into a priestly family, meaning that as he grew up, he was learning about God and about, obviously, a lot of the priestly things. He studied what they had of the Old Testament, the law, things like that that were taken down. He would have been a person who would have got to learn about that. He wasn't like a, you know, a farm boy or something like that. He learned about God as he was growing up. Um, he was probably going to be destined to become a worker for God when he got older. He's the exact same age, actually, as Daniel, if you've read through Daniel, or maybe the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, him going off during his times. Actually, almost the exact same age. So they would have kind of come up along the same time after Jeremiah, who was a prophet over the area. So he would have had some of that influence as well. And now we get to look at what Ezekiel is. So it's good to know a little bit of background um, when we do this. Tonight we're going to compare that idea of God's will in Ezekiel's life, and we're going to look at our own as well, and how they might really, really well correspond when we look at what happened to him and what might happen to us if we really want to follow God's will, that it might be somewhat unpleasant at times. story kind of starts like our life with Jesus Christ, and I mean is this, is if you go to one, the very first thing is Ezekiel gets this amazing flash image of God. It talks about a man that looks like he's on fire from his waist down, and from his waist up he looks like he's glowing metal. Amazing to think about this picture that he sees. He sees literally the Spirit of God, kind of like us, don't we? When we start um, our life with Jesus Christ, it kind of takes actually getting to come in contact with him first, doesn't it? If I'm going to tell you about living that life, um, you're not going to decide for that life if you haven't had an experience with Jesus Christ, that you realize he's your Lord and come to that. And that's kind of what Ezekiel had here. Um, obviously, he already believed in the Lord and stuff like this, but this is where he like really kind of got like, kind of set on fire. Like, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit where, like, it was, you know, shoved on him. He he sees, wow, this is really powerful. This is what I'm supposed to do. We see um, this beautiful encounter, and this is kind of like us receiving salvation. Um, I know I've said it before, but I always try to say it again and again and again when we have our messages. Story of salvation. The fact that all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ, who was Lord, come into an earthly body to die on the cross for our sins. His blood paid for all of my sins, have ever committed, will ever commit in my life, so that when I die, I get to go to heaven and spend eternity with him. Because of the fact that I believe in Jesus Christ, that he's my Lord, he's the reason why I can do that, then obviously I'm going to change my life to better fit what his plan for my life is. That when I die, I get to spend eternity with him. That's the message of salvation, obviously. Um, So that's what we start on here. Okay, now, Ezekiel 2. This is where it begins. He's going to follow what God's call is. And this is exactly where he receives his call. Ezekiel 2, and I want to read you 1 through 7. It says this, He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid through briars and thorns 
are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. So we see this call that he brings forth to Ezekiel. Boom. Just like we get, what's God's will for our life? And we say we want to follow it. He gets this, this call, excuse me, and it's not, doesn't sound pretty, does it? He says, you're going to go to a people who have time and time again not cared to listen to what I've said, have time and time again turned their back on me. This is kind of like, what reminds me of as soon as I hear this, is the story of Moses. This guy had a sad uh, ministry. If you've ever read about Moses, he took these people out of slavery, took them out in the wilderness, and I mean, this guy had to follow around people for 40 years because they couldn't get it. He told them about Jesus, I mean, uh, about God over and over and over again. For 40 years, they wandered around and still were obstinate, didn't care, were idolatrous, all this different stuff that he had to deal with. And it's the same exact people that now Ezekiel's being sent to. In between here, right after that, he says, I'm not sending you to some other nation where they're not understanding your words and you don't understand them, because he said they'll actually accept what you're saying. It's kind of funny. It seems like that would be the hard one, like he's saying he's going to send them overseas to someone else who doesn't understand them. He says, no, they'll accept it. He says, but I'm sending you someone here who understands the word that comes from your mouth, understands what you're already trying to say, and they still don't want it. That's who you're going to talk to. That's a hard calling. And he puts that right on Ezekiel's shoulders. He doesn't sugarcoat it one bit. He says, they might listen, they might not. Your goal is just to tell them over and over and over again. And this is hard. I don't really think that this is probably the ministry that Ezekiel was hoping for his life, was it? To basically be a, a witness to people who really probably aren't going to care. Probably he's not going to get to see a lot of fruit from it. And we can kind of imagine this in our own lives, being called to something that seems like it's, like it's useless, a heavy weight on us. In 14 and 15, you actually see this heavy weight on Ezekiel, and it says this, The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River, and there where they lived, I sat among them for seven days overwhelmed. He says he goes there, and he just basically crashes because it's just too much to take the fact that like this is going to be his life. This is his calling. Not a bunch of other beautiful stuff that you might've, he might have guessed, but that's his calling to be a consistent witness to people who probably don't even want to hear what he has to say. What I mean is this, is that when we start following God's will, you might not get the card that you were hoping. You might have been looking for the ace of spades, but instead you're going to get a four of clubs. You might say that, I want to stay here in Peru, Illinois, and I want to tell my family and my friends about Jesus Christ, and God might say, no, you're going halfway across the, across the globe, and you're going to tell people, who don't know about me. You might be somebody who says, I want to go halfway across the globe, and he tells you, no, that's not for you. You're going to stay right where you're at. God's plan might not be yours. God's plan might not give you everything that you hope for. That You say, man, I want to see miracles. I want to see all this crazy stuff happen. And God might say, no, that's not what you're going to have. You're going to have a life of telling people over and over again, and you're really not going to see much result. He said that to, I believe, Jeremiah when he told him. He says, basically, you're going to tell people over and over and over again, and they're not even going to listen to me. He said, you're going to go tell people that they're not going to listen to me. Isn't that amazing to think about getting that call? 
you're going to go tell people that they're not even going to hear what you're going to say. God might call you to a ministry that you think, man, that's painful because I had different plans for my life. And it might be different. It might be overwhelming, obviously, for what God's will is on your life. The next time Ezekiel is talked to by God is just uh, one chapter later, later in 3, 24 and 27. If you want to turn there, this is what it says. It says, Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go shut yourself inside your house, and you, son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen to him, listen, and whoever, whoever will refuse, let him refuse for their rebellious house. This is the very next time God talks to him. We're going to follow right through. The next time God talks to him, he says, go into your house, and you know what? I'm going to stick that tongue right to the roof of your mouth. You're not even going to be able to tell them unless I give you a word. Unless God gave him a prophecy for these people, he literally could not speak physically. That's what he's saying. Kind of scary, right? It's also scary that if you do the mathematics and you read this book and you're smart, which is nice having subtext in your Bibles, Ezekiel was silent for seven and a half years where he could not speak unless it was God's words that come from his mouth. That's frightening, isn't it, to think that he says that he wanted what God's will was for his life and God called him the fact that you can't talk for seven and a half years. No words. In our own lives, it's kind of like saying this. God might call you to a place where someone's going to smash you down verbally and you can't say a word back to them because that's what the Bible talks about, doesn't it? This is about someone smacking you on the right side and you turn it off from your left side. You don't fight back. God might call you to a place that you think, man, man, I want to tell him what I think. And he calls you to silence. You might have something great. He said that you can't even rebuke them. He might have saw something that he thinks he can help and he can fix, and God says, no, not until I tell you. He couldn't say a word. That had to be obviously pretty hard to deal with. In our own lives, God might take away thoughts that we have, like obviously, um, how about just communication and stuff Ezekiel had to do in his normal life. Um, Even things that he saw in his life that maybe he thought he should take care of. He couldn't. He couldn't. And this is kind of what it might be in our lives, that we see plans, we see ideas that we could do for ministry, and God says, nope, just wait. You do it when I tell you to. That you can't defend yourself, maybe verbally, kind of in in a synonym with what he had, but you have to count on God to be your defender. You see what I mean? Later, just pretty close here, God comes back to Ezekiel again, and he says that he wants him to do this certain type of action to show the people their sin and what had been the past. Now, Ezekiel does this many times throughout the book, if you read it. Um, time and time again, Ezekiel has this really beautiful thing with I mean, crazy pictures that Ezekiel does. Um, you know, like people, sermons, people who preach, they'll have what they call like, um, you know, like, like they'll have an object, an object lesson, and they'll show it to you to try to demonstrate something for, so you get it. Uh, Ezekiel did tons of these where he did things to, to demonstrate what was happening by God, not just telling the people, but he showed them something so they would understand it better, get a, get a grasp on it. He comes back, and he gives this task that's pretty darn difficult. 
starts in Ezekiel 4, and um, this is what happens. It says, Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall, be, you shall besiege it. Excuse me. This will be assigned to the house of Israel. Now here, it says, Then lie on your left side, and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you to the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you to 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. God calls Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days, then flip and lay on his other side for 40 more days. That is 430 days of laying on his side. Now, he still got up and he did other things because there's more to this where he has to, like, you know, do other stuff. But as a demonstration, he had to lay on his side for 430 days. If you think about that, that's one year, two months, and four days. His call was to lay on his side and demonstrate the sin of Israel. How many people feel like doing that right now? Can you imagine dedicating the next year, two months, and four days to laying on your side to demonstrate something? This was God's will for his life. This was God's plan. Here's what I say about this. Can you imagine much else to take away your pride? I mean, seriously, he was a spectacle. I bet you people heard about him, right? Don't you think people probably come by and went to see him? and said that crazy lunatic is laying on his side again. And day after day they went by, and he's laying on his side again and again. For over a year, this man lays on his left side. And you have to think people are like, this man is absolutely insane. Even more beautiful, if this is around the same time, he probably can't get up to tell them that they're wrong, right? Because his tongue is still stuck to the roof of their mouth. He probably can't even say any words back to them to say, I'm not a lunatic. He just lays there. I mean, talk about smashing your pride on the rocks, right? He was made a spectacle. And the same thing can happen in our lives. We say we want God's will. God's will might, for you, might be for you to become an absolute outcast. The fact that no one's going to like you. Because when you start telling them about who you are, about who your Lord is, people say, that guy's an idiot. They don't want anything to do with him. The fact that you might be made an outcast of your friends, people at work, the fact that you might be made an outcast in your very family, that people don't like you anymore and don't even care to be, be around you, it's frightening. Maybe God's will can be a little frightening. Maybe it's his will that you don't get to be cool anymore. All that time you spent working up to be cool, it's all going to disappear because I'm going to make you into a spectacle and I'm going to take away your coolness because it's going to be about what my will is, not yours. Talk about taking away your pride. That might be God's will. I don't want to lay on my side for 430 days. If God called me to that, that's a hard one to take, definitely. 
During this time also, this 390 days in the first one, God also tells him this. He says a specific type of food that he's supposed to cook every day and eat it. And he tells him the certain amount that he's supposed to eat only. And when you do the mathematics on this, it's a small amount of food. It's not very much food at all. He tells him to do this to demonstrate the fact that when Israel is finally paid back for all this, you won't be able to find food. Because God says, I'm going to cut off, I'm going to demolish grain, I'm going to demolish all the animals. People are going to starve looking for food. They can't find it because of what punishment I put upon them. And you're going to show that to them in this 390 days by eating this small amount of food every single day. How many of you guys on your sheets did you write down health? Did anyone write down anything about health? Not a lot of people? How many of you guys have ever thought about God changing your health? Probably not that many. A few? I bet you if you went around to people who claim to be Christians and you told them that it might be God's will for you to become sick, it would freak them out, wouldn't it? Have you ever thought of the fact that it could be God's will for you not to be healthy? There's people who die at our age, 20s, get sick, die. Have you ever thought that it could possibly be God's will for you to not have your health, for you to be in weakness, so that you're a better person, so that you depend on him even more than you would otherwise? And that's frightening. Would you still want God's will? Would you still want his plan for your life if it meant that your health would have to suffer, just as his did? I'm sure he probably got skinnier, probably lost some weight. But even to the extreme of that, that your health could be taken away from you because it's God's will, something that you can't possibly understand, but it's something that he might have for your life. It's frightening. Now, um, I don't know if you guys actually thought about that, but um, after this, kind of a lighter one, but still the same, Ezekiel comes back, and uh, after all this is done with, I believe, after all this is done with, I would guess. He doesn't make a point, I don't think. Maybe it's the same time. I don't know. I'm not good at, at dates in Bibles. But um, he comes back, and this time he tells him this. He says, I want you to get a, sh- a sword, a really sharp sword. And he says, I want you to cut off all your hair on your face, on your head, so you're nice and bare. He makes him take and cut off all of his hair. And he uses it as a demonstration once again. He burns the hair to represent the people of, uh, of Israel as they're going to be punished. I don't know if many of you guys would think about that, but would you still want God's will if it took away your vanity? Would you still want God's will if it meant that you might not get to be so cute anymore? He might want you to shave your head. He might want you to, I don't know, shave your eyebrows. Maybe you're going to get some sort of affliction that's going to take away some of your beauty. Maybe you won't get to be so amazingly beautiful. Would you still follow God's will if that's what it meant. Now after all this, um, I mean all these different hard times, you'd probably think that, uh, you'd probably think that it was time for Ezekiel to get a rest, right? Time for Ezekiel to get a break. Because you figure, man, he's done a lot. And I mean through all this, he continually still keeps on going out, being that representative of God, telling people, I mean, time in and time out after, obviously, um, when God did this, gave him these words, all these different things. He went out and he'd tell people about what God's word was and he would rebuke them, tell them that, you know, obviously Israel would be punished and all these different things. Following God, I mean, a man of God, following God's will, 
you would think that it would have to get easier, but it doesn't. And actually, this one I say is possibly the hardest in Ezekiel's life. Possibly the hardest for us to take as well. All the first things seem kind of minuscule and minute in comparison to this. And it's actually in 24, and it's when God takes and takes away Ezekiel's wife. You want to turn there with me? It is Ezekiel 24, 15 through 18. Listen to this. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, with one blow I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did as the Lord had commanded. God takes and calls to Ezekiel, I mean this man of God who's following his will, and says the next stage of your life is the fact that I'm going to remove your wife. And he says he calls her, he calls her the light of your eyes. I don't know what the relationship was, but he says that, I mean obviously the light of his eyes, so I'm guessing he really loved his wife. And he takes and says, I'm going to take her right away from you. And she dies that very night. Not only that, but he tells them, you don't get to do the customary mourning stuff of your, of your company. You know, in that time, obviously, mourning was a big deal. I mean, for days, you would, like they said, cover your face. And, I mean, there was an amazing amount of lament as you went through your days. And he says, you don't get to do that either. Because you're going to demonstrate something to these people. He's talking about, later on, talking about people dying because of God's wrath and how people will just go on like it's normal business because it'll be so common. And that's why he has Ezekiel do this. And it says in, uh, in, 19, in 18, he says, the next morning I did as I had been commanded. He didn't do all the customary normal stuff. He didn't mourn in public. doesn't say that he couldn't mourn when he didn't come home. He could come home and he could mourn. But he couldn't mourn out in the public for everyone to see because God had a, a plan for what he was going to do with that. I can't imagine how hard it would be to deal with. I can't imagine, um, I've never lost anybody that close in my life and have to try to deal with that. And then to think about that being used by God. I mean, people have family members die in their life and they blame God. How about if God tells you that he's going to do it? I mean, that's talk about wanting to blame God, right? God says, I'm going to take away your wife. And she dies. And that's what Ezekiel is to deal with. What I'm saying is this, is that just like Ezekiel in his life, it might, as scary as it seems, be God's will to take away part of your life. Now obviously Ezekiel married to her. They were, the Bible says, literally one flesh. They were unified in spirit and everything. And God can pull that away from you. That God can remove a whole entire section of your life. It might be literally something like a family member pulled away from your life. It might be as scary as it seems that significant other that maybe a lot of us put down on our papers to find someday. The very love that's in your life. You know, I've obviously, uh, I've never been married and stuff like that, but I mean, the Bible talks about the beauty of marriage and a love that's so deep and to have that ripped from you because it's God's will. That might be God's will for your life. Ezekiel, obviously an amazing man of God that he had to struggle with this. Um, Donald Stamps in the Full Life study, study Bible puts down that he says this had to have been Ezekiel's hardest time in ministry, that every day he still woke up, went out, and spoke the word of God to people. 
and didn't lament and didn't carry this grief on with him to show the people because it was what God's calling was to not even show the fact that it hurt, it hurt obviously, inside. It's scary. It means that, um, like I said, he could take away part of your life. And when I think about that, I think also that it means he could take away all of our life. Now, if you read on, you don't hear about what Ezekiel's death is, but as you read through the Bible, I mean, time and time again, people die for their faith. Uh, we see martyrs constantly. Around this world, people don't understand this, but it's true. People who believe in Jesus Christ, um, back in this day, we see martyrs. We see people who are stoned, Stephen being the first martyr. There's more people being martyred for Christ's name today than there was back then. People don't think it's happening, but around the world, there are more people died, who died today than died back in Jesus' time. There's more people that literally today, as we went through our day, probably had a gun put to their head and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? They said yes. They had a bullet put to their head. There's people who literally have died today, who will die tomorrow, who will die the next day for their belief in God, for their belief in God's will. And it's frightening to think that it might be God's will for you to lose your life for him. This last week we were praying on Tuesday night uh, in our 13, and we were praying for um, missionaries. And we said, let the Spirit just guide what you pray for. And one of the heaviest things that came on my heart as we were praying, and it took up probably 15, 20 minutes of the time I was praying, and it was the Holy Spirit, was just praying for the fact of those people who are literally sitting with a gun at their head and for God's peace to come over them to know that when the trigger pulls that they're going to spend eternity with him. I can't imagine being in that place. Who knows, maybe some of us will have to, depending on what our call is. But I, I pray so much that those people in that time, that they just feel God's peace. Stephen, as he was being stoned, it says that as he's being stoned, he stands up and he looks up to heaven and he says that he sees Jesus Christ standing, waiting for him to come in. All their pictures of Jesus are always him sitting, and it says that Jesus was standing. I love that because I've heard someone say before, and I completely believe it. Jesus didn't sit down and wait for Stephen to come to him. He stood up and he went to meet him at the gates because he was proud of him. And I said, man, I pray that those people who have that gun put to their head, that when they are thinking about that, they see Jesus is standing up waiting for them, saying, come home, you know? That could be our will. Who knows? God might call you to be a missionary. God might just call us to actually live for Jesus Christ. Who knows? Another 10, 15 years from now, the world could completely change, and the United States, the United States could be a place where they persecute Christians and kill them. Nothing's beyond, um, you know, what could happen. That might be our lives. Do you still want God's will? Do you still want God's plan if it means that it could take away part of your life or even all of your life? Now, obviously, um, as you've listened to this, some people would say, man, it sounds like you're preaching a message against God's will. You're saying how horrifying and how scary it could be. And that's really not it at all. The blessings of God are absolutely amazing and are even brighter than every single one of these dim things that I said. I promise you that. The Bible says that God's folly is more wise than our best possible plans and our wisdom. So as we look at God's will, even through all this stuff that seems really scary, the Bible promises that his plan is still better than what we could possibly choose. Now, like I said, God plans, which may have these bad things we've just been talking about, just what we saw in Ezekiel's life that look really scary, 
there are also amazingly beautiful gifts that come with them. And I'm not going to leave those out either as I start talking about God's will. The biggest one that I think of right away is salvation. I mean, that's the very cornerstone, isn't it? Your very salvation. I mean, it's probably the most beautiful gift you can ever think of. When you think about this, God came, died for you, paid for your sins, that when you die, you get to spend eternity in heaven. It says that when we die, we're going to go into eternity. So it's either one or two. It's either you're going to be in heaven with Jesus Christ or you're going to be in hell with Satan and all those people who are being punished. Jesus made a way that we can do this. So all these bad things on earth kind of seem small when you consider it compared to the latter, which is the afterlife, doesn't it? Not only that, but Jesus Christ, who is God, in amazing love, came to this earth and suffered and died on the cross for me. So when I look at that man suffering and maybe even dying for him kind of just seems fair, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like too much to ask. It seems like little to ask considering he did that for me. So, I mean, suffering? Yeah, just as Jesus did. And maybe even dying someday? Well, it'd be only fair, wouldn't it? I mean, kind of to pay that back for what he's done for us? It really doesn't seem as big when you consider it of what Jesus did and what salvation means. Um, I mean, if you, if you just put in your mind the weight of what salvation is, suddenly all that stuff seems kind of small, doesn't it? With how important that is. And if you put them on a scale, salvation is so much bigger and so much more important. Not only that, uh, your salvation through all this, but as I said in the previous weeks when we talked about God's plan, other salvations as well. I said the fact that I believe that God's plan is going to yield the most salvation inside of your life. I don't believe that you can come up with a better plan to have more people saved through your work than what God can come up with. So I said, as you follow God's plan, the most salvation you're possibly going to tell people, you're possibly going to be able to reach people because God's going to put you in those places. Now, like I said, these things seem hard to actually deal with. But this is, this is Jesus' command. As we go through, he says to people, what are the two greatest commandments? He says, love, the God with all, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, just as we just said about salvation, I mean, if you think about it, how many here would say, I would do anything to keep my salvation? Obviously, if it requires this, I'd do it. If it requires this, I would do it. I mean, if it required my life, if tonight they said, you know, if you want to receive salvation, you have to die. I would die because salvation is such an amazing thing. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. So what that means is this, that you would do the same amount of work for your salvation. You would do the exact same amount for your neighbor, for the person who lives across the street, for the person who you work with, for the person who you go to school with, for the person who you see on the street corner, some bum you just walked past. And it says that you love them as yourself. Like I said, people would do almost anything to say that I want to keep my salvation. Would you do the same to get them saved? All these different things that seem like hard, seem like horrible things to have to go through if you're living in God's will. Um, the truth is, is that God's will is going to save your own soul and it's going to save a multitude of other souls if you actually live it. If you actually take you know, a hold of it. 
And I say this, what is that worth to you? And the question I pose that I want you to hold in your heart and actually consider, take it with you, is this. What cost is too much for one soul? One soul that's destined for hell. What cost here on earth is possibly too big to remove them from hell and put them into eternity with Jesus Christ? It's hard to think of something, isn't it? It's because there's nothing. There's nothing on this earth that's worth more than one soul who's destined for hell to go to heaven. It says that when someone gets saved, all of heaven rejoices, dances, sings, shouts, because they're so happy that another soul is destined for heaven, gets to spend eternity with them. Keep that in your mind, obviously, as you go through your life, as you go through trying to follow God's will. I say this, as I've, as I've said all these bad things and all these good things at well, as well, I think of kind of just a demonstration of this, kind of like we said about like an object lesson, something to get you a hold of this, kind of like Ezekiel had to do. Think of this. I believe that anything that is really, really great and is worth a lot takes a lot of great action and a lot of cost. It would only make sense, wouldn't it? Here's a good one for you. The fact that we will compare God's will, the message that, that is God's will, to something like our freedom. People talk about how beautiful freedom is. We experience it here in the United States, quite possibly the freest nation on earth that we get to experience. When we talk about how beautiful freedom is in the United States, we talk about the fact of a lack of oppression, the fact that we aren't you know, directed spiritually by a government, the fact that we can be who we want to be, you know, we can, we can do what we want to do. We have rights as a person. We have things that other people in other countries look at and only dream of. They couldn't possibly imagine that they've never got to experience that we have every single day. All these beautiful things um, that, that make up our freedom, that people, you know, it, it, they hold it as so amazingly beautiful when you think about it. Just the same, we can look at the rewards of God's will, the gifts that he gives us, the peace, security, salvation, these things that are so perfect and beautiful. But when you mention freedom, you also have to mention the background of that. And it's this, is that freedom didn't just show up someday and knock on our door. Freedom took sacrifice. If you only know how many men gave their lives for the call of freedom, how many horrific and scary things had to happen for freedom to continue on, how many people had to die? How many people had to fight? How many people had to struggle through immensely dark and scary times to continue with freedom? See, when you put that together, it makes sense, doesn't it? And we can say the exact same with us and God's will. Is that I say if it's worth a whole lot, there's going to be cost. If it's worth a whole lot, there's going to be those hard things and those tough things. Otherwise, I don't think it'd be worth as much. That's what proves its worth. The same thing with our relationship with God, our relationship in Christianity with Jesus Christ. The fact that there are those costs, there are those hard things that you might have to go through. Now, the reason why I am preaching this is this, is this is what it's going to take to make it. You can say the fact that you believe in Jesus Christ. You can say the fact that I am a Christian but you have to be sold out for God because it's way, way too easy to get distracted here on earth and it's way too easy 
to get scared and turn around and run the other way. You have to be sold out and believe enough that it means more than everything else, this relationship with God, following God's will. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 28, excuse me, Matthew 19, 28 through 29. He's talking about when the end of the world comes and when I come into power. He says this, and this is kind of a beautiful gem to hold on to as you look at what God's will might be for your life. He says this, I assure you that when I, the Son of Man, sit upon my glorious throne in the kingdom, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will have eternal life. He says that all that pain and all that struggle that I just talked about that might be God's will, that when it all ends, there's going to be a beautiful reward. And when you get there, you're going to say, this is a hundred times better, a hundred times better than all that stuff that I had to deal with. It was worth it. I mean, if, if, if you have a penny and someone says, I'll give you a dollar, if you have a, a dollar and someone says, yeah, I'll give you a hundred dollars, the trade seems almost just natural, doesn't it? You don't have to think about that one. He says that you will receive a hundred times in those things, and eternal life. Absolutely amazing. Now, this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that your life is going to be like Ezekiel's if you give your life to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you say you believe in Jesus Christ, expect all of this stuff to happen in your life. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying that you need to be committed enough that if all this stuff did happen in your life, it wouldn't stop you. Because then you're actually going to make it. If you say that if all this stuff happened in my life, I still want God's will. I still want what God has for me because I want to accomplish what he has for me, even if it's going to hurt, even if it might be hard, even if it's scary right now to say it. The fact that I want that more than any of these things that seem so important. Now, um, even if it's this hard, would you follow it? And this is the reason actually why we made out those sheets at the beginning. These sheets are a picture of what our plans are for our life, a picture of every aspiration and hope that we have here on earth before we die. What we're going to do tonight is, is if you say the fact that when I look at my life and I see God's will, I want it more than any of this stuff. Tonight, we have a paper shredder. And what I want you guys to do is, as a symbol, showing God that I want you I want your will more than anything that I can possibly grant myself, more than my health, more than my security, more than the person who I probably wrote down that I said I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, more than the ability or the possibility of making money and all these different things, that I want to trust you. I want you guys to come up and I want you to put that paper in there and say that I give it up. That if none of that happens, I'm still going to follow you. That if it's your will tomorrow that I pass from this earth, I accept it. Because I want your will, I don't want mine. Now this isn't saying that those dreams, those hopes that you put down on that paper, you have to forget about. You have to say, well, I just forget about all that and I'm just, you know, never like that. All those dreams and aspirations you still keep. But what I mean is this, is that you hold on to God and you don't hold on to those. If God's will doesn't include those, you choose God's will. If God's will stops short of some of those things that you were really hoping for in your life or says no to some of those things, 
you say, I want God's will, and I don't want what I just wrote on that paper. That's what it means when you come up and you put that in there. Here's the deal. If tonight you say, you know what, I'm not feeling that. When I look at this paper, I'm just not there yet. That's okay. And what I mean is, is this. If you say, I am just not there yet, it's okay. And I want you to do this, though. I want you to take that paper, and I want you to fold it up, and I want you to keep it. I don't want you to throw it away when you leave. I want you to take it home with you, and I want you to begin to pray to God that he gives you that heart, that he lets you see what God's will is for your life and the fact that it's more important, that you ask God to show me how valuable my salvation and other salvations is and how your will is so much better than what I could give. And I want you to hold on to that paper because if tonight you say I'm not ready, I want you to take it back and I want to see you come back to me in a few weeks, in a month, in a year and come back and hand it to me and tell, tell me that you're ready for me to shred it. Because God's going to change your heart. And I know that you'll come to the place where you realize the fact that I want it no matter what. I want it no matter what. Even if it's going to be scary. Even if it's going to hurt. So, I'm going to plug in this paper shredder. I'm going to have her put on some music. I want you guys to come on up here if you say this is what it is, and I want you to put it in. If you don't, like I said, doesn't, no one's going to judge you here if you say that you're not ready for that, but you have to earnestly seek it. If you say tonight, I'm not ready, go home and start praying about it. All right? So um, I want to pray with you, and then I want us to respond to this because obviously everything in the Bible begs for a response. You can't just hear it and then walk away. You have to respond to it. So let's pray tonight. Jesus, I thank you for tonight. And I pray to you, Lord God, that you would just put deep down in our hearts this realization of your will. That it might not always be easy. That it might not always be, be everything that we've, we've thought maybe it should be. That it might even be painful sometimes. But that we want it more than any of these things. That we trust you, Jesus Christ, and we would rather take the pain and the hardship here. And we would rather take that to gain salvation, Lord God, and gain eternity with you. Jesus Christ, that we love you enough to let go of those things. And I just pray to you, Jesus Christ, that you would let the symbol tonight of shredding this paper be something that reaches into our hearts, not just a physical thing, Lord God, but a spiritual thing as well. I pray to you, Jesus Christ, that um, you would just work on our hearts, change us, Lord God, and I thank you for what you're going to accomplish through this, Lord God, the heart that you will put in all of us collectively, Jesus Christ, to follow you before anything else. I thank you, Lord God. It's in your name that I pray, Jesus. Amen.